Hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. Happy, happy Saturday evening. Um, and I'm glad to see everyone so up in perky uh, today. So thank you for being here. Um, whenever I, um, whenever I was growing up, and I was uh, kind of, you know, like, tired or contemplative or or whatever I remember someone always tried to like cheer me up and to bring me out of that I hated that so I'm sorry I just did that to you guys um my grandpa would do that all all the time he was born in the 20s and um he was like the the perfect grandpa from the 20s, I think, you know, he, 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 um, he played professional baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He, he drove a huge champagne colored car. Um, he, he was very handsome. Um, and, uh, you know, I just remember growing up and how many hours he and I spent in the car together and we would just drive. He's my grandpa would love to drive and tell stories, but the stories my grandpa told, they weren't just stories. It was stories like he was intentional about imparting to me and um, he he was perfect. we would drive in his car and there would be cornfields kind of everywhere and we would just go and, and, and then he'd pull over for ice cream or to buy sweet corn and, and kind of in between he would sing songs, you know, and he'd honk his horn, you know, as he was singing these songs and I remember it was the coolest thing and I would sing along and he was just this this perfect person. His house had the picket fence that would go around it. And, and my grandma, you know, she, she made the best apple pie and she would smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. So like, like going to grandma's house, so it was this combination of apple pie and cigarettes. And I, I love that smell. And uh, it's, it's just this really cool thing. But, but in the car, remember, you know, my grandpa, his job, he was the uh, the the superintendent for all of um, the sc- schools you know, in his county, so he felt like he always had to impart something on me, and he he would say, you know, KJ, it's important to not teach people the facts. It's important to teach people how how to think and how to find the facts. Don't teach people facts. Teach them how to think. Teach them how to think. But I was eight, so I was like, who cares? Can we get ice cream? And, and, but he would always you know, talk about the importance of teaching people how to think different. If you can teach people how to think different, and then you can change how, how, how just the essence of, of who people are. And he, he would ask me things. He'd ask me these profound questions at the age of eight. He'd say, you know, if you were able to do you know, anything that you wanted to do, you know, what is it that you're built to do? Or if, if you had these big dreams, tell me about your 
dreams. Tell me about the things you fantasize about. He would, he would, he would just you have these big, you know, open-ended questions um, that I just thought was brilliant. And then sometimes, you know, if I was like super special in the afternoon, he would pull over in a parking lot and he'll say, here, hop, hop behind the steering wheel and drive. And he has old champagne colored Buick. And, and so I would, being eight, you know, I'd hop behind the steering wheel and I would try to drive his car. And how, how you drive a car at the age of eight is you put your, both of the feet on both pedals at the same time, right? Because you're scared or you, you hit the gas and hit the brakes. And it's like you're hitting the brakes and gas at the same time and our heads are going like this. And we would do that for like an hour. And he would just laugh and crack up. And he'd say, oh boy, you, the two of us are going places. Like, I remember that. Like, it was just amazing. We are going places. Oh boy. And he would just laugh. As Christ Community Church, I believe that... We as a church are going places, and I'm excited to be a part of the places that, that our family is going. Um, our, our church is doing a sermon series um, called Tattered Covers, and Tattered Covers has been so fun to do. It's been, um, it's been fun because all of us have gotten the opportunity to tell stories from the Old Testament from a perspective that some of you have not heard them before, and to bring up some very obscure things that seem to shift and, and change everything. And so throughout this summer, I've, I've heard from um, tons of people, actually. You either have called me or you sent me emails um, who have just been on fire about, wow, I've never heard that before. Tell me the podcast you got that from, or tell me the book you got that from, or, or who did you get that from, or you know, blah, 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 it, kind of all these things. And you know, people just want to find out for themselves, tell me the facts. Where did you get the facts from? And for me, it's just like the Bible. Uh, you know, like I don't know how to. I don't know how to do any better than that. But I've come to understand those the things that my grandpa was was talking about. Like, don't give people the facts. Teach them how to think differently. Because I think that throughout this sermon series, Tatter covers um, the people who have prepared sermons. To to offer you have been thinking very differently of how they approach the Old Testament and how they approach God so that these different things begin to shimmer and shine and come alive. And so instead of just going out and trying to find content to heave kind of at you, these pastors who have been up here, including myself, I believe have a different perspective than um, the average person about the value, the purpose of the Old Testament, and furthermore, the character of God in the Old Testament. And the character of God is important to, to me and it's important to you. And in fact, you know, to, to talk about tonight's sermon, I had to pick a character in the Old Testament because the sermon series, it isn't over yet. So I had to pick a character in the Old Testament. And so tonight's character in the Old Testament is going to be God himself. 
Because I think so often we don't bring to the spotlight the God of the Old Testament. But at the same time, the God of the Old Testament drives us insane. Because if you look at um, from the surface, the God of the Old Testament at face value, it's terrible. Um, he is a barbaric character. And so, so very often, we don't give God the true identity of who he truly is. So tonight's sermon series is built around the character of God in the Old Testament. And it's important because we often forget who he truly is. Speaking about forgetting things, my grandpa uh, today has Alzheimer's. He's forgotten everything. Not about who I had been or who he had been, about who his family is or, or the, 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 the Pittsburgh Pirates or the great things that he has participated in, but he's forgotten about who people are today. Um, so if I call him, I, I don't call and talk to him about the things that are going on. I talk to him about the things that are going on on in his head. I don't tell him about the family I have because he doesn't see me having a family. I don't tell him about the problems that I have because he doesn't understand the problems that I have. He is from the 20s and he exists somewhere in the 40s or 50s. And so to be able to talk to my grandpa, I have to pretend to go back in time to exist you know, in a culture that actually is not here anymore just to play along and to have a conversation and talk to my grandpa. And it's painful and it's hard because he doesn't see me for who I am. And he does not see um, the hardships that I have. He doesn't bring up the questions that he brought up a long time ago. He brings up the things that have been important to his culture, his upbringing, his family back a long time ago. I bring this up because a bunch of us have this perspective of who God is and kind of in the same fashion as that. God is someone who is held captive. He's, he's back a long time ago who exists in a culture and a context that does not kind of hold hands with our own context here. God does not see us here, but we have to go back to see him. And we have to go back to speak God's vocabulary instead of God speaking our vocabulary. It's kind of like God exists on a whole different plane altogether so that God and I um, don't share the same space. We don't share the same story. And we often have to create a whole other context to be able to talk to God. But this is not true. Some of us have this view of God as just being so far out there. In fact, you know, if I brought up the idea of if you close your eyes, who do you picture God being? Especially the God of the Old Testament. If you close your eyes, who do you see God being? And from talking to tons of people, the image of God that a lot of people have is God is 
up in heaven, there are clouds in heaven and there is a throne and God is this older character with a beard and fantastic abs and his big gray beard and he oversees everything and if he ever gets angry, he hurls a lightning bolt, right? You know, God's on this throne in the clouds with the beard and abs, but like the abs are important because it just is. And he, and whenever he's angry, tell me the place that that image comes from. Because that image, a bunch of us here are like, yeah, but that's not in the Bible anywhere. In fact, that's the image of who? Zeus, Zeus, the, the most prominent image of God inside of our heads as Christians is the image of a pagan god, Zeus. How does that happen? Because Zeus is created in the image of man. Everyone, everyone, whenever we try to create God in our, in, in our own image or picture him on our own, we're always going to come up something very similar to Zeus. And Zeus is a barbarian, right? People created them, him in their own image, and people are barbarians. And Zeus is a barbarian. And all of the friends that I have who do not believe in the church and do not believe in God, they'll often bring up the image of Zeus all the time. Like they'll say, I don't believe in God because God of the Old Testament, he did this and he did this and he did this and he's a barbarian and he's in heaven and he's on his cloud and he has this, this bowl of lightning. It's like, who believes in that? And like, they think they're fighting against me. And at the end I say, I agree. I don't believe in that God either. He is gone. He's dead. God is dead. I believe that. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like if that's who God is, he's not real. Because the truth is, is the Bible paints, especially in the Old Testament, this very different picture of who God is and who people are. Because God has created people in his image. People don't create God. And the gods that people create aren't real. And so, from this perspective, whenever we take the image of God in our heads, we have to ask, is this even real? Because for me, I don't believe in the image of Zeus as God. I believe in the creator. I believe in the king. I believe in the shepherd. I believe in the father. I believe in the great general. I believe in the poetic. I believe in Jesus the Savior, right? I believe in Jesus and all the attributes that he has and that he plays all throughout history since the beginning of time. And Jesus is God. And this is important. Jesus is God. That's important to the Christian faith, correct? Because the Christian faith is based around the idea that Jesus is God. And in 
John 14, he says this. He says, I am in the Father, and he is in me. If you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. He is claiming to be the same thing. I am God. I am the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the image of God walking on earth. And then if you go into Hebrews 8, he says, Paul says, here it is, this is important. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus is God, right? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, and Jesus is the same before, today, and forever, then how? How do we hold the God of the Old Testament and Christ in the same hands? Because the God of the Old Testament, I don't know if you've been in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is like the game of thrones, right? It's just this horrific thing. And then you turn the page and it's like the coming of the age of a Aquarius, you know, it's like this is just this party and everything is okay now. And it's just like, it seems to me there's these two different potent pictures of who God is. So how do you hold the God of the Old Testament as being Christ and grace and Savior in the same hands? It's really, really difficult. Especially if you go into a lot of the hard passages in the Old Testament. There are a ton of hard passages in the Old Testament that you and I don't have time to talk about. So I thought it'd be fun to pick the absolute, the most offensive passage in the whole Old Testament, talk about it. And so if I can show you the character of God in what I believe is the hardest passage, the most offensive passage in the Old Testament, then I can possibly talk about all the the other ones at the same time showing the character of God behind it, showing our perspective as the church behind it, and how to see God and how to approach the Old Testament through the eyes of grace. So here we go. Here is the most offensive passage in the Old Testament for me um, that just gets under my skin. It's found in Deuteronomy 21, 10, verse 14. Um, So as a congregation, here we go. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and takes you captive, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes that she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and her mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she will be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, you let her go wherever she wishes. You may not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Well, all right, that's in the Bible. Okay, just so you know, Deuteronomy 21, 10, verse 14. And um, this whole part of the Bible is is how to handle the spoils of 
Help me out, guys. War. There we go. War. Um, how do you deal with the spoils of war? What is okay? What is not okay? And this is in the Bible. And furthermore, the thing that is being said, just to summarize, whenever you go and conquer a territory and you see someone that you're attracted to, go ahead. Take her home, then shave her head, cut her fingernails, and then after she's been there, have at it. And she can be yours forever. But if you don't approve of her, kick her out and let her go wherever she wants. And for me, this just boils my blood. Like, I, I am... All about, um, I'm all about equality. I'm all about the journey that the females have gone through since the beginning of time to come, you know, we're going step after step after step of, I'm just so excited the place we are and the place that we're going. And here in the Bible, this sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. But the truth is, in context, it actually isn't. In context, this passage is actually beautiful. How could this passage be beautiful? Well, first of all, context, right? Context, context, context. Uh, kind of in the culture of um, this passage, that this passage is presented in, um, there are, there is a code of the spoils of war. There is a code that everyone has to abide by. And the code is, it's very, very simple. Whenever a territory conquers a different territory, whatever had been in that territory is the property of the people on top. You're able to claim it as your own. And that includes people. Whenever you conquer some other territory, the people of that of that territory become the property of the victors, the people on top. The people are actually property. They're not people at all. And so it is a common, a very, very common thing that whenever two countries fight against each other, the defeated country then just gets pillaged and destroyed. And so it'd be totally acceptable for the soldiers of the conquering army to go in and capture all the females, take advantage of them, and then take them home to sell them as prostitutes or slaves. And that is acceptable kind of in this culture. It is acceptable then to own them forever. And furthermore, to own them not as people, but to own them as property. This is acceptable in that culture. The thing that this passage is doing in Deuteronomy 21, it's helping people go a step ahead of the culture. Wherever the culture is, God is bringing them a step ahead. He's saying, if, if you go into a territory, if you conquer it, you, if you find yourself in this place, that you are attracted to someone, dot, 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 that you want to marry, 
right? Right off the bat, it isn't someone that you want to take advantage of. It isn't someone that you find value in who could be a phenomenal slave. It's someone that you're attracted to that you want to marry. There's this vocabulary of she's another person. She's not property. You are able to bring her home, but, but, but if you bring her home, here's the first thing that you do. You shave her head. So in our culture, I don't want to shave my head, right? Especially if I just get conquered by someone, don't touch my hair. Like, so you bring her home, you shave her head. Shaving the head is the sign of Morning. It's a sign of my everything has been taken from me. Because you got to remember this girl, this woman probably had a husband. She probably had children. She had parents and they're all gone. They're possibly all killed. They're all slaughtered. And she has been taken from her territory, from her upbringing, from everything that she's had. And she's taken home. God in this passage says, if you take anyone home, you give them the ability to mourn. You don't touch her. You don't touch her for an entire month. You give her the ability to change her clothes, her captive's clothes. She's not a slave. She's a person. You give her the ability to mourn. This is big because only... And people who have the ability to mourn, who have, have the privilege to mourn, are people, right? But property does not. This is a step ahead of culture, a huge, giant step above of humanity. This is beautiful. Then, after a month of mourning, which is also huge from this Deuteronomy passage. You give them the opportunity to mourn for an entire month. By the way, for a Hebrew funeral, the proper time to mourn for a funeral is seven days and that's it. So after seven days, it's like, get over it. But, but here in this context, you give them an entire month of mourning. And whenever the Bible talks about a month, a month is 40 days. And again, 40 days, that's an important number. That's the number of pain and tragedy and turmoil. By saying you give them a whole month to be able to mourn and to feel it and to experience it, it's saying you as their captor have to understand the pain that they're going through. You need to understand the agony that they're going through and the things that you have caused her for 40 days. Then at the end of the 40 days, then if you choose to marry her, that's totally fine. Go and do it. However, if you do not choose to marry her, to choose her, to marry her, which is important, to come into the same household as you, to give her equal status as you, to share in your inheritance, the equality, you're not a foreigner anymore. Do you understand? Like this is such a huge step forward than go collect as many people as possible and prostitute them out. So if you choose, she will be equal to you. But if you don't want to marry her, set her free. 
You set her free. So, so in this passage, that's all about how do you bring home the f- females that, that you collect? It's all about freedom. It's all about you respect. It's all about taking the context that these Hebrew people are and bringing them a step forward. A step forward. This is important because God is always a step ahead of culture, bringing culture forward. He is not in the future asking culture to go a hundred steps further. He isn't asking the Hebrew people to come to the place that our culture is today. He's bringing them a step forward, saying, come into this. Come, if you're able to do this, this is good. But could you imagine the Hebrew people if they said, we are so excited. We are keeping Deuteronomy 21 perfect. And so therefore, we are fulfilling everything that God has told us to do. No, it's still barbaric. This is a step further than barbarianism. Because God, as Father, is always a step ahead of the dominant culture. He's ahead. He's that way. Me, as a father, and you, as parents, are always the best parents. We are the most effective parents whenever we are parenting from a step ahead. A step ahead of our kids. Whenever you parent at the same pace as our kids, it's just a bad thing because it just happens to us. Compared to if you are ahead and you're parenting a step ahead, good things happen. For me, I have two things that I fantasize about as a parent. First thing, so I fantasize about my son and I fly fishing for salmon And Alaska. That's something I think about all the time. Fly fishing for Sam and and Alaska. The other thing, I don't know if it'll happen, but my daughter and I bow hunting caribou in Canada. That's something I fantasize all the time. My son and I fly fishing and my daughter and I bow hunting. At the age of five, I want to take my son to Alaska whenever he's 18 to fly fish for salmon. How do I parent him towards this? I buy him a crappy fishing pole for $5, and then I get dough from bread, and we go down to the funplex to catch bluegill, right? I don't take him to Alaska. I don't put a fly fishing pole in his hand and say, catch salmon. And then when he can't, I don't get mad at him. You know, it just doesn't make sense. That's stupid. It's bad parenting. No, at the age of five, I take him to the funplex. He has this plastic fishing pole. I put dough on the end of it. He tosses it in or I toss it in and he holds it. And then a tiny little fish grabs it. I help him pull it in and he freaks out. I love fishing. I'm like, yes, that is a step ahead. And then when he's seven, I buy him a size bigger pole and, and, and then we put power bait on it and he puts his own power bait step ahead and then when he's 12 do you know what I mean and then when he's 16 a fly rod and I teach him how to tie his flies then when he's 18 step ahead step ahead step ahead step ahead 
For my daughter, I don't, at the age of five, give her a compound bow and point her at a caribou and say, shoot. I get her the plastic bow and that has the little, you know, things that you shoot and it'll stick on things. You know, and she loves shooting her plastic bow. But I'm not thinking about the plastic bow. I'm thinking about her in full camo shooting a big caribou and it going down. But the bow, the plastic bow is a step ahead, step ahead, step ahead. We in the church, when we approach the Old Testament, whenever we approach the New Testament, have to think in the idea that the Bible and how God interacts with the Bible is he's interacting with culture as an ongoing progression of human consciousness. His kid is growing up. His conversation is changing. How he engages culture is different. But from the beginning, grace is always a step ahead. Even in the most offensive passage in the Bible, Deuteronomy 21, if you look at it, compared to dominant culture, it drips God's grace. It's everywhere. And this is beautiful. The problem is, is when you don't approach the Bible properly. Because oftentimes some things that have been a step ahead, a step ahead in the context and in the time that they had been in is actually a step behind for us. And that's okay to say that. If I said, all right, guys, today's topic is Deuteronomy 21. It's here in the Bible. It's time to follow it. A bunch of you are like, whoa, 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 time out. You're crazy. Because that's a step behind. But the thing that is beautiful is you're able to be set ahead in seeing the spirit and the heart of God in any God-given scripture and context. It's seeing the spirit of God moving in and through and around what is happening. And so when you approach the Old Testament and Old Testament characters, and when you approach God and you ask, what are you doing in and around and through this culture and situations, your mind will be blown because you will see every time that God is calling people a step ahead, a step ahead, a step ahead to Alaska, to Canada, to the kingdom of God. Because that's God's dream is to bring his kingdom here, to bring you into it a step ahead and a step ahead and a step ahead. And this is a beautiful thing. And so, so if you think about how this idea of God as being a step ahead, instead of being a step behind, and you have to draw God into the things that you're doing or asking God, what if he's actually ahead of us? What if he actually has journeyed along you and the church forever? What if he isn't caught back in the Old Testament and to experience him, you have to engage this whole other context that doesn't make sense? So I have this, this whole group of friends who, who, who I will go and we'll have coffee and we'll talk about things with. And... And this group of friends, we will talk about the Bible and we'll talk about 
church and where is God bringing his church and what is God doing? And we're so excited. And without fail, without fail, it goes back to Acts chapter two, right? Acts chapter two. Everyone fantasizes about Acts chapter two. It's, it's, it's when the church was first created. It was when the church came to be, and we point back to Acts chapter 2, and we say, if the church could just be like that, and if the Holy Spirit could just be like that, and God's a step ahead. And so, like, for me, okay, just play with me for a second. You know, why are we pointing back 2,000 years ago and saying the church should be like that? Whenever God has been present with his church hand in hand, and the church is the body of Christ, the Christ incarnate, growing for 2,000 years to the place that it is today, and we say for the past 2,000 years, the church has just gone downhill. We got to go back to that when it just happened, when people, they just got the Holy Spirit, when they just kind of understand salvation, when they just kind of get things. That was great. But the church has been here for 2,000 years. It has been holding hands with God himself for 2,000 years. The church has been taught by God. Theology, philosophy, relationship for 2,000 years. And we point backwards. To be able to point backwards, you would have to say that God has not been present. But to say God has been present and God has honed and shaped his church under the idea that God is always a step ahead of wherever you are, wherever we are, that would say the best place that the church has ever been is today, is tomorrow, the next day. Because we are following God, not into the past, but we're following God into the future because he is a step ahead. And his end goal is not to bring us back to Acts chapter two. That was great. But his end goal is to bring us to his kingdom. And Acts chapter two was not his kingdom. We are journeying forward to a God who's in the future. Well, how do you follow a God who's in the future? Perspective. We change our perspective of where God is. Because how beautiful would it be to not think that we have to invite God into our troubles because he doesn't understand them, but he's inviting us into his because he's engaged in them. Like, where is God in today's troubles and today's politics? Where is he? He's a step ahead. He's already there. With everything that's happening in Turkey and Afghanistan, he's there calling you forward into it. You don't have to go there and beg him to show up. He's a step ahead of you. He's causing us to think differently, grow differently. We're not going backwards. God is a progressive God going forward. Whenever you, are, you start to understand and you engage the God of the Old Testament and you see, oh my gosh, he is not a God of the past. He is a God of the perpetual future. And he's calling people into it. And then you start to understand how you have engaged God and how God has tried to engage you over the past, I don't know how long. You start to understand that the person who has the Alzheimer's is us 
forcing God to exist you know, in a context and a reality that doesn't exist anymore. But God is ahead of us, begging us to engage the things that are. Engage the things that he stepped into, calling us forward. That's why things kind of like for the city and beyond are phenomenal. And the thing that I enjoy about it is you know, if you ask someone, well, tell me the things you're going to do for blah, 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 blah. The answer you're probably going to get is, I don't know yet. I think we're going to have to figure it out. We're going to have to ask God. Or tell me the things that you have planned out for. I don't know yet. We're going to have to figure it out because God is already there. He has a vision. He has a plan. He's a step ahead of our church. And how phenomenal is it to follow God into something instead of pulling him into something that you created? So how do you follow a God who is a step ahead? You go backwards, right? You go backwards. You follow and you see the people who have followed God into the future. You go backwards because every story in the Old Testament, every character in the Old Testament is following God into the future future, following God into something that they have no idea what the heck they're doing. You go and you dig into the stories of Abraham, who's following this unknown God for the first time, and you study the obedience of God, praying that you're able to be as obedient as he was whenever you are called into something that you have no idea even exists yet. You go and you study the people like... Noah, who changes the whole trajectory of his entire, entire life because God tells him to do something that doesn't make any sense at all. And then you pray to God that you have such commitment as he did to do the things that God tells you to do. You study the people like Moses, who, who was doing okay until God says, set the slaves free. And so Moses sets slaves free, even though it has nothing to do about him at all. And so you pray to God, may I be as selfless as Moses had been, as brave as, do you know, can you get the drift? We follow God into the future by going back. We look at Acts chapter 2. Whenever we want to become the church that God is calling us to be, we go back and we look at Acts chapter 2. I had no idea what they were doing, how to do anything, this thing called the Holy Spirit, what? And they engage it in freedom and in grace and in beauty, and it brings them a step ahead. Grace is always a step ahead. Whatever you think grace is, you can always take a step further in it. So the question is, is are you engaging God who is a step ahead of you, or are you engaging a God who is so many steps behind you? Because the questions that come to my mind are, tell me the things that you dream about. What are the things that you were created for? You know, if you could do anything, what would they be? Because my grandpa would say, you can trust your desires of your heart because they did not come from you. They have a purpose. 
This whole sermon should feel as if you're hitting the gas and the brakes at the same time. Because Christ Community Church, we're all going places. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that you are a step ahead. That you are not a God who is primitive or barbaric. That you are not a God who, who, who does not engage our culture, engage our problems. And furthermore, that you are a God who's been engaging them for a very, very long time. Help us to ask the questions that bring us forward. That bring your church forward that grow our hearts, that grow our culture, that grow your grace. God, grow your grace within us. God, shift the perspectives. Teach us how to hold your Bible and to engage it with honor and beauty and respect. God, show us your face and how you bring grace wherever you go. Show us that you have been for us, that you are the God who is the same in the Bible as you are today, as you will be tomorrow. Invite us into the story that has been, is, and will forever be. God, bring your kingdom. Bring us a step ahead. God, in this space, we thank you that your spirit is here. We thank you that you have been here for a very, very long time, beckoning us to come forward. God, give us the ears to hear the things that you're saying to each of us. God, speak. In Christ we pray.